Hello, I'm Daniel. This is my podcast, Sharpening the Mind. I am a meditation teacher and also a labor activist in Kansas City, Missouri. I teach classes in meditation and Buddhism at the Rime Buddhist Center, as well as a few other places. Thank you for listening and have a great day. I'd like to talk to you now about the second Lojong slogan. Uh, The Lojong slogans are a series of teachings, and um, they're things that we want to remember. They're basically wise sayings that we want to remember when we need to remember them. Okay, in the second Lojong slogan um, is examine the fundamental nature of the unborn mind. Examine the fundamental nature of the unborn mind. So that teaching is sort of guiding us to investigating our own thoughts, our own how our mind works. The unborn mind, that's like the, our mind at the root of things. Before we start getting distracted by emotional baggage and our tidal wave of thoughts, that's the unborn mind is sort of before we're getting carried away by our thoughts and feelings. So in uh, The Power of Mind, Kentrel Lodrote says, If we examine carefully, we will see that, like objects, the mind appears due to interdependent factors and has no independent existence of its own. It too is empty. We cannot find a mind that exists independently. When we don't realize this, we believe in what we think and we believe in our emotions, which are a main source of suffering. Wow, right? So emotions, our feelings occur independent upon other things. In independence on other things. Sorry. Our emotions occur in dependence and in relation to other factors. So they don't just show up, right? And we tend to think like, hey, that thing that person did made me angry, right? We tend to think that way. And that's maybe not exactly true. The truth is there's an object and there's your perception of that object and an object can be a person here or an action. Your perception of that, and then your perception of that is combined with your mental habits, and that results in an emotion. Object, perception, plus mental habits equals emotion. So all those things come together to make a feeling that you have. We don't think of it that way. But that is that is how that works. So I'm going to read to you now um, a passage from The Power of Mind by Kentrell Lodrote. And this is about anger, but we could use any other feeling instead of anger. But in the example, he uses anger. He's talking about how Uh, Our emotions come from causes and conditions. They don't just arise. They come from things, right? So he says, and I quote, Take anger, for example. Anger arises when we perceive an object such as a person, place, or thing that we don't like. 
Our previous habits and concepts about the object reinforce our dislike of it. And as these causes and conditions come together, we become angry. Therefore, anger only occurs in dependence upon and in relation to other factors. Does this anger have true existence? Is it actually somewhere? We assume the emotion is valid and real and we attribute an identity to it. We think, I'm so angry. And we continue to reinforce and solidify the emotion. But if anger possessed inherent existence, it would not arise in relation to anything else. It would be permanent and autonomous. It would exist in and of itself. Yet we know that anger only occurs when interdependent causes and conditions converge. When certain factors are present, we experience anger, but when they are absent, we don't. This shows us that anger is not an independently existing thing. Continue searching for the nature of anger. The moment you experience anger, look directly at it and attempt to determine its characteristics. What is anger exactly? Does it have a shape or color? Think about its source. Where was this anger before I experienced it? Is there a place where anger originates? Think about its residence. Where is this anger while I experience it? Does it have a specific location where it abides? Does it exist inside the body or outside of it? When the feeling of anger subsides, where does it go? Is there something that goes somewhere? Investigate. Search for it. Be thorough. Continue to look for anger until you conclude that you cannot find its origin, its residence, or the location of its cessation. We can use this contemplation to work with any emotion, though it is particularly helpful when you feel strong emotions such as desire, anger, or jealousy. Whenever a disturbing emotion arises, stop focusing on the feeling and justifying a negative response. Instead, look at the emotion just as it is. See that it holds no truth. When you arrive at this insight, let the mind rest. When you arrive at this insight, let the mind rest. So, that's pretty heavy, right? So he's saying that the insight of the insight of seeing that there's no no truth at the bottom of our emotions that's a deep insight. That's an important thing that we can recognize that we're having that insight and we can rest our minds on it. And this There's a style of meditation, a type of meditation called Vipassana, Vipassana meditation. He calls it Vipassana meditation, um, and that, I think, would be the Sanskrit version. The Pali version is Vipassana, which is a much more familiar term, much more well-known term, but um, he defines it as profound insight meditation when we rest our minds on an insight or realization. So he's advocating that we rest our minds on 
we we work until we have the insight that this this feeling doesn't come from anywhere or go anywhere and then once we have that we just dwell on that we just rest in that insight and so when we're doing that we can bring together our contemplative meditation and our our resting or relaxation meditation and what this will do is bring an understanding of emptiness um a, a mental understanding, an intellectual understanding of emptiness. And that will bring us all sorts of insights. And he says, as we develop deeper insight, the wisdom generated will counteract the disturbing emotions. And that's, uh, that's a big part of what we're looking for. That's a big part of what we're looking for. So when we, those disturbing emotions cause so much of our suffering, and if we can learn how to have the wisdom we need to overcome those, that's, that's a game changer. That will change our lives. That will change our lives. I'm going to read to you one more quote from him um, in this section. He says, and this is, this is a really important point, I think. For the practice, and I quote, for the practice to be effective in clearing away negative emotions, we need to develop stable insight. Applying the practice once or twice won't tame the mind. Profound insight deepens over time as we engage in repetitive training. Once we have developed certainty about the empty nature of mind, negative emotions will subside the moment they arise, and the mind will be released from their influence. Such emotions will be experienced as insubstantial and will no longer have power over us. That's really empowering, right? Because that's that's the thing. Some people might hear this message and think, well, what about this situation where I have a right to be angry, right? What about my righteous anger in this situation where this person really hurt me, right? This is not about our right to have a feeling, Feelings, you have a right to feel however you feel. That's a, that's a strange way to think about it. This isn't about that. This is about having more control. Having more control. And the situation we're in right now, our emotions have control over us. Our emotions can make us do things we really don't want to do. Our emotions can get us to do things we're really going to regret later, right? We've all had that experience. And what we want, and I'm calling anger a disturbing emotion. I know um, disturbing is a judgment word, but the point is that anger is something that makes us really unhappy. And it can cause a lot of harm. So it's not so much I want my anger to be gone, but rather that... I don't want it to control me. I don't want it to control me. I want to be empowered to decide how I'm going to react to things. I don't want my disturbing emotion to to make me feel like I have to do something that I don't have to do. You know? And so this applies to anger. And anger is a very good example for this because it's such a strong emotion. But it, any any emotion can make us harm ourselves. Any emotion can, even the good ones, right? We, you know, we 
make bad decisions when we're angry. We make bad decisions when we're super happy sometimes. I think we don't talk about that enough. We make bad decisions when we're in love sometimes. We make bad decisions when we're really happy. And that's something we need to face. The point is that I don't want to lose my my faculties. I don't want to lose my wisdom about the situation just because I'm having a big feeling, whether that's happy, sad, angry, greedy, lustful, whatever the feeling is, I want to have some aspect of my my better judgment that I can bring to the situation so they don't hurt someone else or myself. Hurt someone else or myself. So... You know, when people are angry, they might hurt another person, right? Or hurt themselves. And I think when people are really happy, they might spend more than they can afford to spend, right? Things like that. It's not the same, but there are ways that all feelings can harm you if we're not able to just just have that wisdom eye to look on them and know whether or not we're making the best choice. Okay, so now I'm going to read to you the the third of the Lojong slogans. And I won't have nearly as much to say about that. Maybe, we'll see. So it is, even the remedy naturally subsides on its own. And so what are we talking about here? The remedy is this compassion, wisdom, insight that we're developing. And he's reminding us, and maybe we need to be reminded of this and maybe we don't, even wisdom arises from causes and conditions. It's not something that just is out there and just exists. It arises from causes and conditions because everything does. And sort of a hard thing to wrap our heads around. But he says, if the mind cannot be found, then wisdom, which is a component of the mind, is equally impossible to find. Look at the remedy itself. and Examine it until you resolve that it, too, is empty by nature. By allowing the mind to rest in that final insight, even the remedy naturally subsides on its own. Um, I'm not worried in my life about getting too attached to wisdom and insight, but um, clearly that is a thing, or it wouldn't be in here. That's a thing that happens to some people. And we want to hold on loosely to even these great things that we know we want to activate in our lives. Even they, we need to hold on loosely to, because we could go too far. Could we go too far? We could in some ways go too far, you know? You could join a cult, right? Things like that. Like, things could happen if we're just too interested in wisdom and we're attached to it, it could, it could lead us down some negative paths. You know, when people become too attached to their insights, then they start thinking they've got it all figured out. And I don't think most of us get it all figured out ever, right? So I think in fact, hardly any of us get it all figured out. Maybe no one actually. So If we get too attached to our insights, we might think, oh, I've made it. I'm a Buddha, right? I'm a Buddha. I'm ready to save the world. I'm ready to bring enlightenment to everyone. And 
that might not be the best thing for us, right? So we need to we need to kind of, especially if we start to think in that way, we need to think, reflect on this, right? Yeah, we need to reflect on this if we start to think that way. So now I'm going to read the fourth one. Rest in the true essence, the ongoing state of the ground of being. Rest in the true essence, the ongoing state of the ground of being. So <clears throat> at this time, I would like to summarize the first three. And then we'll go into the fourth one. So the first one, which um, I talked about in an earlier talk. And if you need to go back to listen to that, if you haven't listened to that one, you should. It should be the episode right before this one. Um, but I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you the first one was consider all phenomena to be like a dream. That was the first one. And, you know, it just means learn to see things as empty of inherent nature. That's, that's essentially boils down to it. So I'm going to read to you, um, Kentro Lodrote's summary of the first three Lojong slogans, and then I'm going to tell you the fourth one, okay? So he says, the first one, sorry, the first one, consider all phenomena to be like a dream. About this, he says, and I quote, investigate the nature of objective appearances to discover they are like a dream. And for the second one, examine the fundamental nature of unborn mind, he says, investigate the nature of both conceptual and non-conceptual mind to determine the mind's unborn nature. And for the third one, which was even the remedy naturally subsides on its own, he says, investigate the nature of the investigator of that true nature. Wisdom, the remedy to ignorance, to see that it too is empty. So he describes those first three as contemplative meditation. He says, these are contemplative meditation because, and I quote, they involve study and analysis to discover the true nature of objects, the mind that perceives them, and the wisdom that knows true nature itself. This generates the wisdom of study and contemplation. So on the fourth one, rest in the true essence, this, the ongoing state of the ground of being, about this one, he says, immerse, our, immerse ourselves in the wisdom that knows that nature by simply allowing the mind to settle within that insight. So we're talking about Vipassana again. We're talking about that profound insight meditation. So he says this, this immersion comes after the investigation. When we've gotten to the point where our minds can rest in knowing emptiness sometimes. Can rest in it without analysis, without having to work so hard to bring it to mind. Rather, we can get there and rest in it. So he says, and I quote, Meditation is always preceded by knowledge. We study and contemplate something until we understand it, then we blend it with our mind in order to directly experience that truth. The process of blending 
is meditation. I just, I kind of liked that, so I wanted to read it to you. Um, the process of blending. I really like that description of meditation. So, um, next, I'm going to talk about Buddha nature, because Buddha nature is what we're talking about. That's what that true essence is. Buddha nature is the unity. This sounds really um, heavy, really heavy. The unity of emptiness and clarity. So, Kentro Lodrote says, Buddha nature has the, its essence is emptiness and its nature is clear luminosity. It is, uh, end quote, it is considered the ultimate nature of our minds. Is We call it Buddha nature. It's the mind of awakening. It's the mind of awakening. It's our, at our core, we have wisdom and awareness that's available to us. It is our true, our true nature is wise. Our true nature is not held back by all these things that hold us back. Our true nature is not stained by our traumas. Um, it doesn't carry our emotional baggage. It doesn't have our, our, our weaknesses are just on top of our true nature. And it's sort of like something we're trying to uncover. That's how, that's how I like to think of it. And we call that Buddha nature. Just the Buddha just means the one who was awakened. So we're talking about our awakened nature. Our true nature is good and wise and sees clearly. Okay. So uh, he goes on to say, I really like this quote too. And I quote, through practice, the conditions that obscure us from seeing and experiencing mind's true nature are gradually refined away. As we gain more subtle levels of experience, eventually we will see mind's essence. So uh, the stuff that is stopping us from seeing our true nature is like, um, I've heard it described as like our nature is like a dirty mirror and the dirt is our delusion, our attachments, our emotional baggage, whatever, whatever is our delusion is our, is the dirt, right? And we are trying to get that dirt off our mirror, right? We're polishing, we're polishing the mirror, we're cleaning the mirror and the mirror is reflective and is maybe bright and beautiful, regardless of how dirty it is, it's reflective underneath that dirt, right? And we can think of it, we can sort of maybe think of it that way because the nature of the mirror is not changed by having dirt on it. If it's broken or scratched or something, it's changed, but just having dirt on it is not changing the nature of the mirror. So even though you can't see your reflection in it because it's so dirty, your reflection's in there or the potential at least, right? So we can sort of think of our emotional baggage and our, our greed and our labels we put on the world and everything as dirt on our mirror. And we want to learn how to at least, at least get rid of the parts that don't serve us very well. In many traditions of Buddhism, uh, preliminary teachings are often given so we don't learn how to work with our, so we 
so we do learn how to work with our minds before we receive the most profound teachings. Okay? So that's why this, this the fourth teaching, the Buddha nature teaching, that's why the first three are there. We want to be working on seeing things as empty and seeing ourselves as empty and seeing even the path we're doing as empty. And then hopefully that helps us, if we're practicing that, that helps us to be ready to receive the deeper, deeper teachings, the Buddha nature teachings. So he goes on to say, and I quote, We need to go through some degree of training to transform and refine our minds. When we practice Lojong, we gather an immense amount of merit and purify many obscurations, which prepares us to see the nature of mind when it's pointed out. But if we don't train our minds, it's unlikely we'll be able to grasp the instructions. In order to develop the capacity to recognize ultimate nature, we must work with our mind and begin to clear away obscurations and negativity. This process will allow our mind to become clearer and our understanding to deepen and grow. So that mind, that's a, this is what mind training is about. Or rather, it's a, the ultimate goal that it can take us to, is understanding our true nature as empty and luminous. Empty as in there's nothing like to hold on to, but luminous as in our true nature is awaken, awakeness and wisdom. Awakeness and wisdom. Our true nature is good, and that's why it's luminous. And resting in true essence is learning how to engage our true self and to rest in that place. That's where we want to get to. Okay, that's where we want to get to. So, um, the fifth of the Lojong slogans. This will be the last one we talk about today. It is. During post-meditation, see everything is an illusion. During post-meditation, see everything is an illusion. So post-meditation, that's a weird term. It just means what we're doing when we're not meditating. So whatever else we're doing in the world is considered post-meditation. This is where we are hopefully bringing the wisdom and insight from our meditation practice into our day-to-day lives. All of the compassion and wisdom that we're developing in our practice is not much help if we can't bring it off the cushion and into the world. Our progress can only be measured when we're moving through the world. So, you know, if I'm in a temple doing my meditation practice and hearing teachings, maybe. I don't have a lot of, you know, nobody's cutting me off in traffic. Nobody's being annoying. Nobody's bothering me. I don't have the same struggles I have in my day-to-day life, right? There's no, I don't have a deadline to accomplish a task I don't know how to accomplish, which I might have at work. I don't have that in the temple, right? So it's, it's, Maybe a little bit easier for us to dwell in wisdom when we're at a place that's really conducive to that, right? But when I'm stuck in traffic or when I'm at work, it's not very conducive to wisdom and compassion. I have to really want to manifest those things. And 
We want to be able to. So we're not meditating just to be good meditators. We're meditating to transform our lives, right? And so it's important that we're taking this with us and not just only practicing our spiritual path when we're in the temple or when we're on our meditation cushion, right? It should be with us all the time somewhere in our minds. So don't forget. Don't forget all this stuff when you're out in the world, when you're in traffic, when you're teaching your kids how to ride a bike, when you're at work, whatever you're doing, don't, don't, we don't want this stuff to slip. We want it to be with us. Everything lacks inherent existence. So clinging to things doesn't make sense and makes us unhappy. And we don't want to forget that when we're more likely to have things to cling to, right? We want it to be something we can focus on. So, uh, Kentrol Lodrote, he goes on to say, to integrate insight into our lives, we need two tools, mindfulness and vigilant guard. To be mindful means to remember the methods for taming the mind and cultivating its positive potential in any situation. Vigilant guard means to be aware of the state of our body, speech, and mind at any given moment. Practice is like a habit. To form it, begin with the intention to be mindful and vigilant. Think, think. I am going to cultivate mindfulness and vigilant guard. Then try to reaffirm the commitment as much as possible. So I'm going to read to you a... Um, Oh, I need to say something about that, don't I? Um, so what we're trying to do is bring that into our lives, is integrate that into our lives, This these insights we're having. And with mindfulness and vigilant guard, that's how we do that. Mindfulness and vigilant guard are the things that help us to not forget what we need to do. So mindfulness helps us to remember the methods and vigilant guard just reminds us to keep a watch on ourselves to keep a watch on ourselves and make sure we're not losing sight of what we can do to help ourselves. Cause that's what it's really about. So I'm going to read to you, um, a little section. This is about reflecting on that last slogan during post meditation. See, everything is an illusion. So I'm going to read to you some reflective reflection guidance. Okay. Okay. And I quote, if you're enjoying something, enjoy it as a magical illusion. The moment you recognize its illusory nature, let your mind rest for a moment right there in the midst of whatever you are doing. If you are disturbed about something, pause. Adjust your perspective and recognize the illusory nature of the situation. Then, allow your mind to rest for a moment right there. If that isn't sufficient, consider that, that the reason you are upset is that you believe that whatever you are experiencing exists exactly as you perceive it to be. Think about how different people or even different species can perceive the same person, place, or situation completely differently. This is because the object doesn't inherently exist according to our perceptions. 
It is not what determines our experience. Once you are able to acknowledge this, use any of the methods of examination presented in this chapter and analyze the true nature of your experience. When you reach an insight about its empty, illusory nature, allow the mind to rest right there, immersed in wisdom insight. This is the Vipassana practice off the cushion. So, that is all for today. Thank you for taking the time to listen to me, and... Have a good day. Thank you for listening and have a good day.